Good morning and welcome to episode 22 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. Uh, excited that you are with us today. John, let's jump in. I know you want to cover some interesting stories out of Texas this morning. Yeah, just following the headlines here, um, reading the story about Goldman Sachs breaking ground on its second largest U.S. hub. Um, you know, we talk so much about the office market being in the uh, doldrums. And here we've got uh, global financial giant Goldman Sachs expected to begin construction on Tuesday, long-awaited $500 million office campus in Dallas that eventually be the home of more than 5,000 employees. And I guess the point is, and I think it's a consolidation of folks working in the region will be their second largest hub, but it's just a reminder that some folks um, aren't going remote. Some folks aren't necessarily embracing hybrid. Here's going to be 5,000 people coming into the office and, um, you know, uh, Hillwood and uh, Hunt Realty Investments, um, as a landlord, who just landed a um, eight eight hundred thousand square foot office tenant. So good, good for them in Dallas. Not sure if that's an outlier or um, a sign of strength. Yeah, Hill, Hillwood Ross Perot. If if folks old enough listening to the podcast know who he is, um, that's his development company, and um, I've worked with them. They're they're a very good Texas developer. Uh, that has that has a uh, a great uh, model down there. So it's not surprising that they they picked a you know it's one of the best developers in the market to build product that's going to be probably the best down there. Um, but it's it's a testament to the fact that they're forcing their people back, um, and they want them back full time. So they're making a commitment to the environment they're going to work in right so bringing these people together build a new headquarters campus i think yeah if i was a shareholder i'd think about it a little differently given i think what owen you're going to talk about next around texas but there's probably some really good opportunities that are either out of the ground already or being built currently but um it is a it's a testament to texas wanting to be bigger and better and always you know wanting to build <laughs> yeah that's it Fantastic segue into my topic today, which uh, to both you, uh, Brian, you and John, what you said. So for listeners, um, I imagine those those of you who, if I asked, where's the highest vacancy rates in the nation? I, I'm guessing a lot of people might, might say San Francisco. If you're from the West Coast, if you're on the East Coast, maybe you'd say New York. Reality is America's highest office vacancies aren't on either coast. Um, they are in Texas the thriving Sunbelt state that has been luring companies away from, you know, cities like San Francisco and New York. Um, surprisingly, Houston, Dallas, and Austin top the list of U.S. major cities uh, with the highest vacancy rates. Um, it's crazy. It's about 25% of their office lease wasn't, of their office space was not leased by the end of last quarter, the third quarter of uh, 2023. Um, to give you an idea of what 25% vacancy is, relative to the coastal cities, that's more than double New York's vacancy rate and well above San Francisco's. New York is sitting at, was sitting at 12%, San Francisco's 17 um, And then I think you've heard of us talk about Castle Systems, which is a company that uh, measures occupancy, counting keycard swipes. Um, surprisingly, though, Houston, Austin, and Dallas have the highest office return rates. And so then the question is like, okay, if they're the highest return, what's, what, what's going on in Texas? And the, to Brian's point, right, as he concluded there, Texas loves to build. Um, and they just have too much supply. Um, and it's really an evidence, in my opinion, of the U.S. office market. Um, 
having a glut of buildings across all of major metro mar- major metropolitan markets that are old, antiquated, haven't been reinvested in, and you know our candidates, if, if their floor plates are small enough for conversions to multifamily, um, the the but what's so crazy about this is that during you know this last I'd say year of return to work, we've all hypothesized, or at least I have at times, that you know things in Texas are going great and the economy is roaring. There's no question about that. But there's just a tremendous amount of product that is old and antiquated. And if they keep building, John, to your point, Goldman Sachs says, gosh, if there's so much vacancy, obviously rents have come down. And if I can, you know, buy a um, class A plus building for the price of what would otherwise be a class A minus or B plus commodity building, why not? And so, um, yeah, it's 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 crazy what's going on down there, and remote work is also hurting them. So keep in mind, they're not back a hundred percent of the time, um, but the impact that remote work has had on Texas companies and the Texas office market has been a lot more gradual than what we've seen uh, here on the West Coast and probably on the East Coast as well. Um, so just interesting data that came out today in the Wall Street Journal. Feel free to take a look at it. Um, but news to I imagine many of our listeners. Yeah, I've got a, a slightly different take on this, and uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind when I when I read this this morning <clears throat> was uh, "stupid is as stupid does." <laughs> it's it's to me it's the classic developer greed or just explosion. They're looking. So I just came back from Atlanta. I have a client where we're working on a strategy in Austin right now, and. The issue with these markets is there's no there's no boundaries, right? So think of Texas, think of uh, uh, think of Atlanta. They can just continue to grow and grow and grow. And a lot of these buildings, I went, I was driving down the road with the team I was with, and I said, well, like, what's this building going up right here? Oh, that's two hundred and fifty thousand feet of spec office construction that's going to deliver in twenty four. A couple more miles down the road. What's that? Oh, that's 400,000 feet of spec office that's going to deliver in 24, right? And in, in, um, if I was to guess, as as people were looking at the numbers of, of uh, workers moving into Austin, moving into Dallas, moving to Texas, developers would acquire land and they'd start construction on spec for office buildings, assuming if we build it, they will come, right? You know, it's Kevin Costner and Field of Dreams. Um and it's really what it is. It's a field of dreams because if you ever look back at these cycles, there is there is the opportunity for a pullback in, in the cycle. And we're seeing it in a major way because of two reasons, both because of the economy and because of return to work. So the the um, you know, the market is is reflecting that there's just going to be way too much office space in Texas. Is going to be way too much office space in a lot of markets, but I would think that you know certain market like Boston, we didn't have any office spec development. We don't have those same issues. We've got our own issues because the market's challenged anyway. But you're not going to see um, these huge vacancies of new buildings like you will in some of these other Sunbelt states. This is the exact same reason that before COVID, before all these changes to how people work in office space, that. Uh, cap rates and the prices investors were willing to pay for uh, office buildings in supply constrained coastal markets was so much more uh, even normalizing for rents of course being higher in in coastal markets investors have always been willing to p- pay more for these buildings 
uh, in cities where they can't just keep building. I mean, you think about, you know, being one of the, you know, earlier developers in the development curve of delivering new product in Atlanta or Houston or one of these cities, there's nothing to stop your competitors from overbuilding, getting greedy and really creating a significant headwinds on pricing power for future rents. You know, as we talked about last week with WP Carey selling, you know, 9.2 million square feet of office space, the same thing kind of occurs here where you're delivering a building into a market and the price somebody's going to pay for that is a function of what's the net present value of the cash flow stream based on some reasonable discount rate. And then what do you think you're going to be able to release the building for at the end of the lease? What's the probability of the existing tenant stays and all of these factors and you know, assuming that your tenant doesn't default, then that's somewhat locked in. And of course, everyone's discount rate is going to be different. But competitors, uh, other developers delivering product after you've delivered a building, you have no control over, particularly in these other markets. And in markets like LA or San Francisco or Boston, where there's a lot more, you know, supply constraint or traffic is just so bad that realistically, the areas where you could deliver more supply won't really make sense for a company to locate in. It's um, it's a big safety net for developers. And the, I think the reality is that, you know, overbuilding is, is good news for tenants, right? It's going to put downward pressure on price a lot faster than they will in other markets. There will be desperate developers that need a lease product, that have a, you know, construction loan that needs to be refinanced into permanent debt. And that's going to, to really help uh, companies considering leasing office space in these markets. Who it's really, really going to hurt, though, is legacy owners of class B and C office buildings where tenants are leaving their buildings and they're never coming back and they're going to have a really hard time finding anyone new. So let me pivot there and talk about a legacy owner. Um, here's a building sale I want to um, bring up. Uh, 657th Street in San Francisco, otherwise known as 600 Townsend Street, uh, just traded. It's uh, Blackstone bailing out. The uh, building's empty. It's three stories of office. Uh, it's 87,000 feet. There is a lower level. There's a penthouse. Uh, I think the floor plates are 20,000 feet. Um, anyway, LBA is the buyer um, at $290 a foot, $25 million. Um, okay, that's interesting. And as you go back through prior sales, um, I find a peak of $542 a foot um, when when... You can't tell what Blackstone paid for it because it was part of a portfolio, but the immediate prior sale was a six cap at 542 a foot, which means that LBA is buying it something like 50% of it, 50 cents on the dollar. Um, by the way, it's gorgeous building. Uh, brick and timber, you know, the floor, the floor to floor clear is like 17 to 18 feet, exposed ceiling, beautiful, beautiful space. Um, and then the story gets even more interesting when you realize, well, why does the LBA step into the opportunity? Okay, it turns out LBA bought it in July 2007. For two hundred ninety-seven a foot, um, and apparently rode it up to something like that five hundred and forty-two number. And now here it comes on the market, and they can get it for two hundred ninety, and they're, they're going to go. They think they're going to go do it again, um, maybe. But you know, that's a, everything's got a price. Um, I guess LBA found that one at two hundred ninety a foot. Here we go again. I think I was just with um, a director of real estate this week, and. She asked the question, why are we not seeing more of this? What, why everybody's been talking conceptually that commercial real estate's in such a bad place. Why are we not seeing more of these sales? And, um, you know, I think, I think the clearing prices are 
too aggressive for a lot of owners to bite the bullet. And it's just going to take a lot of time for <clears throat> it to work through the system, right? So, um, you know, if you're a tenant sitting there going, well, when's the right time? My lease is coming up, you know, in 26 or 27. When's the right time? And, you know, I think that answer is more complex than waiting for the market to come to you because of a lot of other factors associated with that. But um, it's certainly it's certainly moving in the right direction. And, um, you know, you if you get a proposal from a new building, this is where it gets interesting. And how do you you know, how do you play the market? If you get a if you're a tenant in <clears throat> in a legacy building and you get a proposal for new construction, uh, a building that's already up. Right. And and owners sitting on some vacancy. The pricing is going to be where it was in 2019, 2021. There's no discount to market. They are not even competing with uh, the buildings that have retraded or the buildings that are trying to chase the market down. Um, and if you're a company looking, sitting there going, well, I want a flight to quality. I want to be in a better building. I want to be in new construction. But the pricing isn't reflecting where I, where I want to be. You know, what's, what is, what's the strategy? How long should we wait um, is it ever going to be there? Right. And those are questions that are coming out right now that are really challenging for companies to answer. Um, and I think the first kind of the first piece of that for me is even subleases are super high, right? <clears throat> even su the sublease market is in effect in a lot of, a lot of the markets I'm working in, including here in Boston, they're pricing them to compete with direct space. But I think the secret is deals are getting done at massive discounts. So you have to ignore the asking rents a lot of times, and you need to get into the market and start competing for space. Let these sub-tenants and certain landlords really know that you're real, uh, and you'll see a drastic discount to what the asking rents are. So, And I think in, a, in the case of this, this building, I think um, you know, it's going to be one in San Francisco where if you have a, if you have a requirement – this will be your stocking horse to drive the rest of the market down when, um, you know, certain owners aren't ready to go there yet, but have to. Yeah. And on the topic of strategy, you know, it, we are entering that time where it's going to make tremendous sense to do something if you're a tenant and have kind of line of sight, you know, for the next five to 10 years. But I want our listeners to also be careful about what you read in the paper. Um, there was an article in the Puget Sound Business Journal here in my market here in Seattle, Bellevue in uh, the Pacific Northwest that um, literally talked about surging tenant demand. And I was, I read the article because I was like, huh, where, from what planet is this on? And they talked about 20 requirements that were looking for office space in downtown Bellevue of a full floor or more, um, which is probably true. But keeping in mind, I know all of those 20 requirements, um, many are lease renewals um, or small Bellevue tenant expansions. And so what, what I look for in market activity that could actually change the market is really what is going to be the net new net absorption. Net absorption, again, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, is how much space is actually leased beyond what might be that tenant might be leasing today. Is it negative or positive? Are they taking more? Or are they taking less? Um, and it's just funny because I think there's um, people are starving for some some good news in the market, but this market that I just talked about has an overall vacancy rate, including subleases of 24.6%, 17% um, higher than it was five years ago. Bellevue has historically been a very tight market. 
And it's going to take a tremendous amount of tenant expansion and a, and demand to put a lid or a, a damper on that rising vacancy because it's only going to get uh, bigger uh, as tenants' leases expire over the next few years. Um, and so, as a tenant, you read this. If you had read this article, uh, I would have thought, "Geez, maybe I've missed the bottom. Maybe I maybe I missed that opportunity to to do something." compelling when in, uh, you know, when in fact I think what's what has yet to happen in many cases are people have yet to capitulate publicly. Brian mentioned leases are getting done significantly less than what they might be asking or what their advertised rate might be. Um, but I think it's only a matter of time before people capitulate and actually start promoting rents that are really where they should be um, versus trying to hold a face rate to make it look like you haven't yet had to decrease rents. I love it. I said it on the last pod. Now you're saying it, but let's just say it out loud. We're in the pre-capitulation phase. Um, you know, and over time, more and more folks will have to have to admit the reality and, and um, transact where the current market is. Now, let me, I wish I could write this question down and get an answer from, from each of you um, independently. But if you today are advising a client, now knowing that the market hasn't capitulated yet, like John and Owen, you were just saying, if you were advising a client today, and it's a significant sublease, say it's a full four more, would you would you play the same game? Where would and this is what the reason I asked the question is I think the answer from a firm that only represents tenants is is going to be an outlier in the market that we're seeing for everybody else. So if you were advising a tenant today, Owen, I think you got your hand up here. What would you tell that tenant in terms of? putting out a sublease and where would you price it in, in relative to a market today? Yeah. So, um, I would price it aggressively, aggressively meaning cheap, uh, not expensive. So goal would be to, um, be essentially the cheapest option relative to relevant competition. So I don't think subtenants or sub sub landlords should discount their space if they're in a class A premium building to somebody that might be considered class B or class C. Um, but this is a very easy, uh, discussion to have with anybody. If you explain the time value of money every month that goes by, it's a wasting asset. Um, it's not generating any income. And if you never are going to go back and there's absolutely no use for the space, um, I can show you empirically, you know, what the cost is to just hang on to a space that's overpriced and gets, and is a wash in a list of availability that a broker who's advising their client creating a survey just looks over. You have to be compelling. And that doesn't mean that it's still going to lease, but you have to give yourself every ch chance. And we run some sensitivity analysis for our clients when we're evaluating subleases to show them, you know, if we try and hold the market rents uh, where they might be for, let's say, the majority of subleases that aren't leasing, let's look at how long they're sitting on the market. In many cases in Seattle, for that matter, you know, subleases have been on the market for well over a year. It's not uncommon to see subleases that have sat for 12 to 18 months. Um, and then we look at those that have leased. We have that empirical data to show, gosh, for those that have leased, why? Was it just premier space or was it priced accordingly uh, where it should be? And so for those that are truly just need to get rid of their space, um, the difference between leasing it 18 months from now and say three to six months from now is astonishing when you look at the numbers. And so my point is don't try and be a hero. Get a tenant in there, assuming they're credit worthy and get the space leased uh, and start receiving income sooner than later. I think the other biggest factor here, Brian, is how much remaining term is left on the primary lease. 
I mean, if you have 36 months of term remaining and you're going to, you know, sit there waiting for 18 months and you have this expiring inventory problem where you're effectively, you know, losing 50% of the seats on the airplane you could sell because the flight's taking off tomorrow morning, of course it makes sense to discount uh, and try and get somebody in there really, really quickly. I think where it becomes much more complicated is when you're dealing with, you know, maybe you sign a 15-year lease and you're five years into it and you have 10 years of term left. Um, I'm curious what you all think, but it's it's my strong belief that when companies go out and decide to take real estate, it's not like, you know what, if prices are cheap enough, we're going to get an office. Usually by the time they've gone out to get an office, they've already made a decision to get the office. And then it's a matter of what does it cost? Is it X or is it Y? And I think that when you're marketing a sublease, you need to take into account a, a couple other things. So obviously, as Owen's talking about, the quality of the sublease relative to alternatives. If you're the nicest sublease in the market and there's limited competition, great. Um, you do always want to be priced in a way where you have the ability to get the next deal or at least the opportunity to look at the next deal. But the biggest thing uh, that I see neglected a lot is what is the value of the furniture uh, and the construction delta between the allowance that you would get on new construction and the actual cost of the construction. Um, like for, for example, I have a client right now, we're subleasing a fairly large block of space and all of the other options that we compete with in this particular market from a quality standpoint are direct options that are new construction. And anyone that takes one of these new construction options is going to have to come out of pocket, pro assuming they sign a 10 year lease probably at a minimum $50 a foot in tenant improvements, and then probably at a minimum another $30 to $40 a foot in furniture, fixtures, equipment, security, audiovisual, all cabling, right? All of the things that go into a space like this. So when you start thinking about that, and you just assume a rent is, you know, three to $4 a square foot per month, it's like, okay, that's anywhere from two to three years worth of rent payments that they can forgo up front. And you have to assume that when you're representing a sublease that's of meaningful size, that the brokers representing these prospective subtenants are going to have some base level of competency and explain how that math works to their client. Um, and based on that, when you have a lot of term left, you have a really high quality option that doesn't have any CapEx to get into. At that point, I think you can price that sublease closer to the cost of direct options, but you sh still should represent a meaningful savings compared to those. Um, so anyways, that's that's how I think about it. Um, I think there also was a time, and I think this time has since passed, where you would sit there and say, okay, we have you know 120 months or 130 months of term left. What if the market improves dramatically over the next 24 months? What rent could I get 24 months from now for the remaining you know 96 months or whatever it is? I think there was a lot of optimism around people uh, 18 months, two years ago, that maybe that you know final eight years of the 10 years of sublease term you have left could be at significantly higher rents than we were experiencing or are experiencing now. And I think that that portion of the sublease market has already capitulated and said, okay, rents aren't coming back up meaningfully. If anything, they're going to continue to come down. Um, and then I guess lastly, I, oh, and I can see it looks like you want to jump in and say a few things, which is great. Um, if you have a long-term sublease, you also have to keep in mind that there, there's two factors happening. Most of the other sublease space is either expiring or getting subleased, right? So if you have 10 years of term left, 
all of the the uh, vast majority of subleases from the COVID era are going to be gone because they're just going to expire or be subleased, right? At that point, you have less sublease competition. But at the same time, you're going to, over time, have more and more direct competition with actual landlords. And if they're in this pre-capitulation stage, they're not really competition because their pricing sucks. But if they capitulate and these buildings start going into default and you have somebody that resets like LBA did in San Francisco, buying at a 50% basis of what it was last sold for you know, pre-COVID, then all of a sudden you might have some real competition from actual landlords that are going to be looking at the math differently. They're going to be saying, wait a minute, I can provide two years of free rent because I get to capitalize this value. Whereas if you're a sub-landlord, you don't get to capitalize the value and all you care about is the cash flow. Fantastic. I mean, I don't have much more to add um, the way you wrap that up, but I think the biggest thing is when you look at these subleases for comparisons to how to price yours, Tucker made a great point. You have to look at the remaining term. Um, there are subleases I know of in Seattle, for example, uh, and some in Dallas for that matter, where I was, uh, re- someone reached out to me based on a client I was representing and they were just asking for us to cover their operating expenses. Now, in context for what, for what it's worth, it's important to note, these subleases only had, one had 21 months of term left, one had 18 months of term left. And for those, we just didn't want something that short term. And so keep in mind, like that is something they're just trying to recover operating expenses. Whereas if someone had eight, nine, 10 years of term left, it's going to look a lot different. So um, definitely consider uh, the term length of any sublease when you're pricing it, because that has a huge factor in terms of what your competition might be. Yeah, and I would I would just add that Tucker, your point is is brilliant on a lot of these short term subleases coming back to ownership. Ownership's going to have a very different profile, but remember the space that is leasing now is second generation plug and play, or the closest that they you can get to plug and play in the marketplace far and wide. So as these subleases expire, landlords are smart. They're they're keeping the current improvements in place. They're negotiating to keep the furniture in place with the tenants that don't need it anymore anyway. Um, a number of landlords I've seen around are doing a lot of spec suites. Now, the spec suites are small, five to, you know, I think 8,000 feet was the largest I heard about um, off the top of my head. But landlords are realizing that's the, that's the market that's coming back first, small space and plug and play space. So as these subleases expire and the space coming to, back to landlords is second generation, high quality space in a lot of cases with finishes, that is going to be a lot harder to compete against as a sub-landlord because landlords are looking at the math very differently. They can discount the pricing, provide free rent, add more TI. They just have more flexibility than an owner that's just trying to, re- or a, a sub-landlord that's just trying to reduce the out-of-pocket cash flow um, and, and, and eliminate an obligation that they have to pay for anyway. And so I think right now, as you're seeing all these subleases on the market, it's it's good. It's a, and I hadn't thought about it this way. It is smart uh, from a strategy perspective to get out ahead of that and try to compete uh, with the market the way it is today, rather than an owner that gets the building back later who has a lot more levers to pull to make deals. Okay, I've got another topic. Um, I know we just talked, I think, in the last pod about WeWork. I want to go back to talk about WeWork. Because there's an article that came out yesterday, and it provides some really interesting new details. And here, here's what I'll do. I'll put it to the three of you. Um, if if you were a landlord, and you recently signed a lease with WeWork, and now they're coming back, and they want to retrade the deal, 
would you engage? And now let me give you some, some background. Um, they're basically, that's what they're doing. They're going back and pleading poverty, threatening bankruptcy. Um, but here's the context. Um, Regis bankruptcy, August, 2021, no uh, chapter 11, January, 2021, serendipity labs in New York, um, 2020 bankruptcy. Like that's what these co-working companies are doing. They have no choice. And, and so here's some details about WeWork. Uh, negotiating with landlords, portfolio leases. Uh, they've got $2.2 billion in rent due next year. Um, um, while WeWork said it's making progress in its talk with landlords, that it wants to wrap up in about 45 days for each situation. Okay, so we're talking like there's a time fuse on this thing. CEO David Tolley said the company has exited or amended 590 leases since the fourth quarter of 2019, slashing $12.7 billion in future lease payments. Its leases account for two-thirds of its operating expenses. Pretty interesting. That's, I guess that's obvious, but um, we've set an aggressive timeline we think is appropriate and fair for landlord partners to engage with negotiations. Uh, WeWork has a, a few options as its losses outpace available cash on hand. Um, first half 20, uh, 2023, WeWork reported a net loss of $696 million with $680 million of liquidity as of June 30th. Um, okay. So here comes WeWork to renegotiate. Do you engage? I mean, it can't feel good. But what choice do you have? Do you engage? I think it's important to, to, for the listeners to understand what worst case scenario is for them. And if WeWork was to go bankrupt in a reorganization, the maximum value that a landlord can, can get now, this is subject to them actually having the value is 15% of the remaining lease terms value capped at three years or one year's rent, whatever is higher. So that's, so that's kind of, that's the baseline if they go bankrupt. So my answer is, is if you can, if you can get more value than that, I think what you do in my, if I was the owner, the way I look at it is this, I want more flexibility in the lease. So I want more money now, less money later. So I want to shorten, I think WeWork's Average lease term is 11 years. And if you are predicting and you have a position where you think you're going to own the building in four or five years, based on the rest of your rent roll, <clears throat> I'd want to catch the market on the backside of this and not have WeWork still in a large percentage of the building. So I want short terms. I want higher rent. And it just becomes, to me, it's not about market rent. It's about, okay, you have four floors for 11 years. I want you down to two floors and I want you to pay me 25% of that total value over the next five years for those two floors, then I'd work with them. But if not, I think, I think it's better to just let the process play out and do nothing. You know, in most cases, what I've seen so far is letting the process just play out. Um, we just had three floors, uh, a former, now former WeWork hit the market uh, about a week ago here in Seattle. Um, I don't know what, what good it's going to do. It's kind of just like, you know, kicking the can down the road. I mean, is WeWork going to all of a sudden see some sort of resurgence with their occupancy levels to the point where they're going to be able to pay rent if you, you know, renegotiate with them? Maybe, maybe not. Um, it's a big bet to play. Whereas if you just let them walk um, with whatever sort of security you can uh, retain um, based on what deposits they might have had, you do have pretty nice space. Um, now, granted, is anyone going to walk into a former WeWork uh, as is? Probably not. 
but there are components of their space that they spend a tremendous amount of money that I think has a residual value. So I'm of, the, I'm of the opinion is like, let things, let things play out as they should. Um, and it's unfortunate for landlords. I don't envy them to be in that situation, but if I were as an asset manager having to make that call, I, w- I wouldn't renegotiate. Brian, I think it would be really interesting if you could talk a little bit more about what a landlord would be entitled to in the event of a WeWork bankruptcy. You cited, you know, potentially receiving up to 12 months of rent and some caps. I know that that varies state to state and that there's interesting legal precedent uh, in different states related to this. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works? Uh, why you think those are the numbers uh, and what variants there might be? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So I'm. This is actually new to me. Uh, as I was reading up on this on WeWork, uh, it was cited in one of the articles that bankruptcy rules um, cap claims for landlords at fifteen percent of the remaining rent, not to exceed three years or one year's rent, whatever's higher. Right. So that is, and I don't know if that's, that's bankruptcy rules through this, you know, the state of Delaware or, or however, it depends where you fly. I don't know the details there, but that to, that to me, um, if this is accurate and it's in the journal, so I hope they've done their research, um, kind of sets your floor on what you would expect to get, um, in a bankruptcy process. And I don't think you would get more. Now, the question is, is does WeWork have the liquidity to even do that? They've got 777 leases. So um, do they have the liquidity even to provide that much? Who knows? Probably not, if I was to guess. So maybe, you know, maybe that number doesn't, it's it's irrelevant because there's not enough liquidity anyway. It makes you realize, um, you know, these, these landlords are in a tough spot, right? But it's worth pointing out that ordinarily, this isn't available to most companies because, bankruptcy. I mean, there's real reputational harm um, by going down this path. Uh, what's different for WeWork today is look around. Uh, there are competitors who have all gone bankrupt. There's this pandemic to point to. Um, you know, would any landlord in the future ever do one of these long-term heavy TI, heavy up front free rent deals with a WeWork? Probably, maybe not. But then again, WeWork doesn't need more space. It needs less space. Um, so just the, to realize, yes, the uh, courts um, are limiting the um, benefits to the landlord through a bankruptcy process. But then again, most companies can't really play the bankruptcy card because it's a uh, one and done, you know, very real reputational harm. Um, it just so happens I don't think WeWork has a choice or have, yeah, it has no alternative. It has to play this card. And just for the purposes of our listeners, I do want to mention that yes, WeWork is in trouble. To John's point, and to what we're, we're talking about right now, and there are some co-working spaces that are just no longer; they're gone. Um, but that doesn't mean that all co-working is just getting decimated, because there are cases where there are actually waiting lists to get into co-working spaces. And I'm not saying that's the majority, but I have a good friend of mine who's a CEO of a company. Um, he happens to live in Park City. The co-working space that he's in, uh, called Kiln, K-I-L-N, in Park City has a waiting list. Um, and that's not um, the only one around the country. I've heard it from other clients as well in hot markets where there's a really high-end co-working space, you know, strategically located. You know, it's not WeWork. It's got a lot of things going for it. There is a lot of demand. And I guess I would say that that is the minority. 
I'm not, certainly not the majority, but I just didn't want to pe- people, our listeners to think that everywhere in the United States where there's ever a co-working, there's just like, it's been gutted and there's a ton of vacancy because that's not the case. There's some that are doing tremendously well. I would add to that, even there's some WeWorks. I think the problem with WeWork is they went into a market and where there was enough demand for them to realistically take, say, a floor of space, they took six, <laughs> right? So it's, and, and I, you know, I don't feel bad for landlords because landlords saw it. They knew it. The brokers were talking about this 10 years ago almost about like, where is this demand all going to come from? And a lot of it never even happened. I would love to know how much, how much of WeWork 700 leases or how many square feet represented in their portfolio is still either in shell space or, or not in a position to lease because they made these huge bets and the space was never even built out. Uh, I think they got rid of a lot of that in the last go around, but even here in Boston, they've got a number of floors that they did. They went and did a 15 year lease with Amazon, built it to Amazon spec. Amazon signed a three year lease. Their building, their new building was delivered. They're out and now you can't release those floors in the current condition. And WeWork doesn't have the capital, uh, to, to retrofit them. They have a very good business on two of the floors, but the other five or six floors that they have in this particular building are, are empty. And what do you do? Because they want, they have a good, you know, a good tenant base and, in, in 20% of what they have. And I'm going around in different markets. The, the, if I was a listener right now, and I know this is really hard for corporate real estate directors, but I've got clients that are doing it with, with us. Um, so it can be done is, is to go into a market and find the co-working that is local, regional, or is just in the right place, right? It's, there's like in Park City, I bet you their location is where everyone wants to be anyway. It's where the residential is or the best restaurants or it's the coolest building. I was just in another market and, um, you know, this particular university had set up a co-working in the building right on campus. It was packed and I don't know if it was full or not, but we toured it just as a, as a short term kind of re- relief valve as we're going to set up a new office. And it, it had a vibe. There was students everywhere. There was companies pl- in there and it's just, that's where you want to be. So I think the answer was we work just easy. We can set up a enterprise level agreement and we can push out locations anywhere we want them. And in a lot of cases, that still does work. But if you're doing it to try to reactivate or get people back to the office, I think it just takes more homework, unfortunately, uh, you know, on the ground, primary research in a market to figure out where the right co-working is and where you want to be as a company. Okay, that concludes episode 22. Uh, lots of interesting topics today. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with episode 23. Thanks so much, everyone.